0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Break the Cycle with me, your host, Joshua Smith. I hope everyone is having a wonderful Thursday evening. God, we're like, uh, we're pushing 60 episodes here in the last four months. It is a grind, guys. It is an absolute grind, but I appreciate you guys sticking it out with me and uh, supporting the show and becoming patrons and all the great stuff you guys have done for myself and my family and and this show. But let's start off with some sponsors. Of course, we have Lorenzotti.coffee for all your delicious Italian coffee needs delivered directly to your door. Bring the taste of Italy home. Use BTC at checkout for a 10% discount. And my friend, my partner on the show, Uh, One of the coolest guys I've ever met. Uh, Finally had the opportunity to sit down with him and do a show recently. TopLobsta.com for the the dopest uh, graphics you will ever find because he hand draws everything, including this Scott Horton in the war uh, sweatshirt that I'm wearing today. It's good stuff. Use BTC at checkout for a 10% discount. Or join the Patreon, subscribe star, star, or become a member of this channel to get in the Discord where he drops all of his new art Early, like two weeks, and uh, gives you like a 30% discount. I think it's 30%. It's really deep. It's way better than the uh, than the sponsor code. And, of course, executive producer of the show, AnthemPlanning.com, for all your emergency and crisis planning needs. Check them out. See what they can do today for your business, home, or family life. Uh, these people are doing a wonderful job that the government sucks at for a much cheaper price and much more efficiently. Use them and see what they can do for you today, guys. We have an awesome guest for you today. I'm super, super excited for this one. Uh, probably the biggest guest I've had on the show. No, no offense to, to Dave Smith. Uh, he's been he's been wonderful. Uh, she is a, uh, re- uh, sorry, reformed. Is that the word? It's that was right. Uh Yeah, yeah, exactly. Investment banker. Uh, she's a New York Times best-selling author, including her new book that I have here, "The War on Small Business," that basically outlines. Uh, what we all went through over the last year, and she is an advocate for big hair. She is Carol Roth. How are you doing tonight, ma'am?
1: I am doing fantastic. Thank you for the lovely introduction and the introduction of my platform of small government, small business, and big hair.
0: I love it. I love it. That you know, that was one of the coolest things is the, the big hair thing to me. I don't know. I'm I'm an '80s kid. You know, it's like big hair just kind of comes with comes with the territory. Uh, but I'm a fan. and, the, the, and it, ha-
1: the hashtag actually came from one of my followers, Cobra Commander Fifteen, and it is hashtag Laissez Hair. <laughs> like, like,
0: oh, that's I saw. I did see someone drop that, and I, I giggled. Yeah, I so, thought that was So really,
1: every Friday we do we do lazy Laissez Hair.
0: <laughs> I do. I do really like that. I think that's great. But uh, well, you, you got a new book out, and I like I do. it. It's a great book. But I want to hear your journey first. I want to know how you got to where you are. How did you become an investment banker? How did you get into this these uh, these these free market uh, decentralized principles, and, and then become this wonderful author that so many people have come to love?
1: Lord, oh Lord. Okay, so the the way back story is, I was always sort of that entrepreneurial kid that was hustling through the neighborhood. You know, whether it was babysitting or selling cookies or T-shirts or whatever it is, I've always been working in entrepreneurial and entrepreneurial and also interested in markets. And neither of my parents went to college. My dad was an electrician. My mom was sort of a, a stay-at-home mom turned uh, hobby entrepreneur, if you will. And uh, I got myself into Wharton undergrad, which is the top uh, undergrad business program in the country. And I went to my dad and said, "Okay, this is great. And he's like, I have no money (laughs) to send you to school. So good luck to you. And we sat down and kind of figured it out because obviously Ivy League, very expensive. And my dad was very much a principled about you can't take on debt unless you can pay it right off. Like that there was just that sort of non-negotiable. So I said, Well, I heard that you can make a lot of money if you go there. And he's like, Okay, well, you can only do this if you're gonna do that. So I went in with that as my mindset. And when you're in like a position like that, there's usually two paths to paying down debt really quickly. Uh, For people who like to do a deep dive into something, they become management consultants. And for people who have ADD and like to do a million different things and work on a million different deals, they become investment bankers. So that's how I ended up in (laughs) investment banking uh, with my $40,000 of college debt back in 1995. And uh, paid that down in a year and a half, found that I was pretty adept, became a, a VP and an officer by the time I was 25 years old. And you know had this great career, but like I never wanted to be the world's best investment banker and always had all of these other interests. So eventually uh, left that firm, started my own investment bank, and over time said like I have to figure out what I want to do. And a lot of people were like, oh, well, you should be on television. And I'm like, well, that's a great idea. I've always wanted to be a game show host. Like, how do I go about doing this? And uh, and so I kind of, like, worked backwards. And, and this was, like, way before social media or anything. They were, like, you know, blogs and, you know, whatnot. So got a camera, started filling, filming entrepreneurship segments um, use that to get on radio. Use that to get on local television. Use that to get on national television. And you know, again, I wanted to talk about like small business and entrepreneurship. But what happened, faithfully good or bad, is in 2012 when Mitt Romney was running against President Barack Obama. Um, they basically said, well, he's a private equity guy. And we—it would be helpful if we had somebody who knew like what that was and how to explain it. And you were an investment banker, and can you come on and like explain these things, auto bailouts? And I was like, you know, oh, yeah, sure. And I got dragged <laughs> into politics from somebody who was not political at all. And so all of this sort of knowledge base took like my prior studies and my prior knowledge of markets. And then I started learning the political landscape, was completely horrified by the whole thing. And uh, here we are, still have not yet been a game show host, but I have been a judge for Mark Burnett, uh, on America's Greatest Makers on CBS. So reality competition judge, almost there, still working on the game show thing.
0: Very, very, very close. So so let's talk a little bit about the war on small business. The full title is How the Government Used the Pandemic to Crush the Backbone of America. Now, You had to have been writing this in real time.
1: I was. I was. I was approached by HarperCollins to do an economic breakdown of what they knew was going to be a historic economic moment, um, not just for our country, but for the world. And we had no idea the scope of what was going to happen. So I was literally following this real time, gathering information, writing, rewriting. I wrote like three and a half different books during this period of time, because things kept shifting and the focus kept shifting. But small business was always in focus because I've been a longtime small business advocate. I've written another book, as you mentioned, about small businesses. And in March, when these mandates came down, like I was one of the first people, as they were crafting these different acts, like I put out an op-ed and said, uh, this is how you should structure this if you don't wanna completely crush small business. So we knew that was gonna be part of the, the overall situation. Little did we know the, the full scope of what was gonna happen. And so um, all of that sort of unfolded real time. And like the worst part about it is obviously things just keep changing. There's a long tail. So at some point you just had to like cut it off and go, okay, I'm just gonna stop here and tell stop telling the story here. But there's you know so much that's happened um, even in recent months, that would be great to add as an as an addendum. Sure. So it's a uh, it pretty pretty wild time, but that's kind of how it it came to be, and, and was an Herculean task because the book is incredibly sourced. Like everything in that book has a freaking source. Yeah, there's, like, to there's it. like there's like there's like there's like
0: 30 pages of notes in here.
1: Yeah, like yeah. literally been checked like five times a piece. So yeah, that this was this was a hard book to write but i'm really proud because this is the story that is so important that nobody's talking about
0: sure sure yeah absolutely it's it's always about the uh the you know infection rate and the deaths and this and that but they don't we don't talk about all the 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 stuff that has come along with the government shutting people down but this book so this book is is more important than just about small businesses right like like it's it's you know, uh, at first glance, you're going to say that's a book about small business, but it really goes so much deeper than that. It's a book about centralization and the, uh, you know, distribution of power in this country and the, and the blatant power grabs. And, and it goes so much, so much deeper. Um, What, I mean, obviously you wanted to write about small business. You're a small business advocate. You've, you've written about small business before, but what was it that really wanted you to like, you really wanted to highlight this, this bigger picture? right
1: yeah i mean it was very simply looking at you know what it was that had happened which was clearly the government picking winners and losers not based on data or science but based on political clout and connections and then using that to enable the most historic wealth transfer from main street to wall street that we've ever seen in history so you know once we had looked at what happened i thought it was important to go back and say, well, how did we get here? Like, how did we get to the point that enabled something like this to happen? Because that can't just happen overnight. There needs to be sort of a a pathway to get there and then what's the solution to that? So that was kind of my framework, even though the book isn't like, you know, Sesame Street divided up by saying like, here's the, here's that. That's the roadmap and sort of how I constructed it. And so I thought it was important and that's why it includes everything from a breakdown of the Federal Reserve in very simple terms for the average person to understand what that is and the path that they've really created since especially the Great Recession. As well as everything up through China and sort of our relationship with China and how central planning brought that about and how that really has a mirror reflection on the spectrum of of capitalism or free markets, free choice on one end and sort of central planning, force and coercion and control on the other end. And so, like you know, those things aren't necessarily obvious when you read the book title or even the book jacket but it comes back over and over again that those are everybody's favorite chapters because it really kind of digs in and gets at these issues where you're able to kind of piece the the whole puzzle together.
0: Sure. Sure. And I think, uh, one of my favorite things in the, in the book, uh, was just one simple term or, or or a couple of sentences where you, you said, uh, from too, too big to fail to too big to succeed. Right. How Can you break that down a little bit and let people understand what you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So there's there's sort of two components of that. So there's the too big to fail piece of it, which, as we know, is the moniker of the last great recession um, when the banks were deemed too important, even though they had took on these nefarious actions uh, of their own accord that damaged the worldwide economy and we've all paid for. We still use our tax dollars to sort of bail them out. Um, and this time around, the small businesses didn't do anything. This was government mandate. This was eminent domain, subjugation of property rights for the public good kind of stuff. And they were really too small to matter. Or too hard to control. Perhaps a little bit of both. I lay out the the choose your own adventure and you can make that decision yourself. So that's kind of one piece of that. And then you have the government side of it, which is that too big to succeed side. And I don't think people have really taken a look at the structure of the government to see how it's become this Frankenstein monster. Whether you look at the amount that they spend, which before COVID was about 8.1 trillion across all levels of government, whether you look at the more than million laws that were passed over a 50-year period at the state level, and the 12 to 15,000 laws and 20,000 regulations in that you know same or similar period that were passed at the federal level, whether it's the purview of the things that they are involved with. Um, And then just the general idiocy of the people who are in charge of this. I mean, it's not like we're like finding the best and the brightest and the biggest experts um, to run this. So I just don't think people really understand what this kind of big monster is and how this problem is systemic. You know, there's so many people who want to blame, oh, this guy or this guy or this party. And like changing one or two cogs in this wheel isn't going to fix this. This is a monster. Uh, It needs to be fully attacked and, you know, frankly dismantled because the problem is is systemic. And we saw, and you know, I tried to be fair in the book, and it's one of the good pieces of feedback I've gotten and one of the things that I think has kept me off some of the major media is that I put blame where blame is due, and that falls on people in both parties. And sometimes the same person gets some blame and some credit because in, in the nuanced reality, that's just how it is. Um, but it's, you know, it really is systemic. And we're at a point, Too Big to Succeed was actually the second book and book title. It started as The Looting of America, and then it moved to Too Big to Succeed. And then it moved to the war on small business. And all of those concepts really are, um, you know, encompassed in this, this broader war which as we said is, is really decentralization versus centralized power.
0: Sure, sure. And and I think your book really highlights a lot of stuff but during this this entire fiasco over the last year, I think the the craziest trick that the government has pulled is they somehow got the left, okay, who has been a, you know, a vehemently against monopolies and big corporations and all this stuff. They somehow got the left to cheer on the death of small business in this country and and applaud uh, you know these rising profits for these corporations that they hate. How do you think they pulled that off?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's really the media running cover for the broader story, which is you know what they're going to gaslight. They've been gaslighting us, trying to tell us this. This is how they're trying to rewrite history that economically there were no consequences. Because they can point to the fact that the stock market did great and that IPOs were at record levels and that SPACs had record values. And they will sweep under the rug the hundreds of thousands of small businesses that were murdered by the the middle of last year, the millions more that are struggling to survive because, again, they consolidated power. I mean, I think people really need to understand, if you look at the economy in the U.S., It's divided like almost in half before COVID. Half of it is decentralized into 30.2 million small businesses that are 99.9% of all small business entities, about half the GDP and about half the employment. The other half, 30.2 million on this side, About 10 to 15,000 big businesses on the other side. So what they're doing is they're taking the decentralization and they're moving it over here and they're consolidating that wealth and power. So we saw seven tech companies gain $3.4 trillion in value. Part of that was because they closed down the small business competitors and dollars went from small businesses to Amazon and Walmart and Target that were open and that increased their revenues. But there was also multiple expansion because of the Federal Reserve intervention in the market that increased the multiples and the value and disrupted risk in the market. So it's being done on two levels, but if you look back and you do a snapshot, you can, you can finagle the argument for people who don't know the data underneath it that, oh, everything's great, but it's not great for everyone, and it's not great by government mandates, which is really the problem. If this was just free market competition and they out-competed in an even and level playing field, then fine, that's great, that's, that's what they should do. But when they are getting not just favors, but literally mandates that you are essential and you are non-essential. Like if it wasn't bad enough that you heard that you didn't build that, now you've been told you're not even essential anymore. Uh, That's sort of the outcome. And so that's why people really need to read and understand the book so that they can counteract those arguments and that we don't give the media and the government an opportunity to rewrite history and keep shifting the economy into this little pocket that moves us away from free market capitalism towards central planning, under whatever name you want to call it. Socialism, democratic socialism, you have crappyism, whatever you want to call Tyranny. it. It's still, right, yeah, whatever it is, it's a handful of people making choices for everybody else. If you're in the club, you benefit, and they use force, coercion and control. Bad outcome for economics.
0: Sure, absolutely. Uh, um, I, I, th- I think that's a that's a it's a crazy number that you just threw out there that I don't think a lot of people understand this this small how, just how much uh, of the market small business makes up, and and uh, in the book you talk about how you know small business represents decentralization. One hundred percent, and and these big businesses represent you know, centralized government, just a couple, of, a couple of people who get to make the the uh, the, the market decisions, basically. Um, I mean, do you think that, you know, this is just like a, a big ruse for everybody in the government? This has always been their plan. You had mentioned something in the book about it, this kind of starting in the 80s and not really just yeah. happening fast. I mean, is this, this has really been something they've been pushing for for a long time?
1: I think it's probably, well, listen, I have a, a quote in the book going back to FDR. He had this small business conference that he was trying to get people buy it. And he was super frustrated because everybody was independent. Oh, he couldn't right. get that to, to agree on anything. So, like, obviously, this has been going on since, like, the beginning of time. Um, but I think, you know, there was – it probably has gotten – a little bit more nefarious as we have gotten these bigger companies with, with more power. And I can't tell you like who is driving it. Like it may be that the politicians are just dumb pawns and like they just don't care about the small business. And so the big businesses see that as the opportunity. Like I, I'm not gonna sit and break down, but whether you think it's incompetence, whether you think it's, they think that small businesses are relevant, whether you think it's intentional, It really doesn't matter from my perspective because the outcome matters and the outcome's all we care about. We never care about intentions, (laughs) we care about outcomes because those are the things at the end of the day uh, that drive what's gonna happen and human nature is is human nature. But we did see this like all the way back um, and why I included the the China chapter with the decision to try to, to include a communist country in capitalist trade. It's like having a football team where, like, the two teams are playing by two entirely different sets of rules and expecting that it's going to be a good outcome for like everybody in the league. And that, that's just not the case. Um, so it is interesting to kind of watch the trajectory. And we know the small businesses have been penalized. Again, too small to matter, too hard to control doesn't matter. But they have consistently been penalized because they don't have that political expediency. Um, they're not giving the lobbying dollars, they're not making the campaign contributions, and they're just hard to corral. And that is inconvenient if you're a politician and you care about power. And if you are anybody who lives in reality, which I imagine if you're watching the show, you are, you know that there are no politicians out there who like have put human nature aside and are like doing things because they love you, right? right? Like, at the end of the day, they're going to do things that benefit themselves and, and benefit um, those around them. And certainly there are there are a handful of people who are, are, are pretty decent um, in Congress, but they're few and far between. Thomas and Massey's the all right. System is, you can't build a system based on, like, you know, unicorns and rainbows. Sure. <laughs> sure. Ta-
0: you know, there are a few in there, definitely. But I think uh, and you, t- you talked a lot about the economic recovery plans uh, that they put forth in the book as well. And uh, CARES Act and, and this and that. But I. Uh, it was stuffed with. I mean, more money went to the the cronies than went to help any person in this country. And we were talking about how you know this this uh, this this fiat money that they were sending out. It came to me at the right time because I got all these kids I got to take care of. Random, you know, over a year is it like it's like oh okay, well that's cool. I need that, and if I send it back, I mean they're just gonna burn it anyways. So, but I mean, how how do how do these people let a nation of millions, hundreds of millions of people, uh, kind of just turn off to the fact that the majority of this economic recovery plan, these economic recovery plans and bills, were filled with pork that that all this money went to all these things that were deemed essential over over us. I mean, I, I, I mean
1: the media is entirely complicit in this messaging, and they have been from the beginning. The number of people who, when I bring up this war on small business, that will say, "Well, you know, what what did you what do you, What's the alternative to lockdowns?" And I said, "Well, we didn't have lockdowns. Right. <laughs> we had targeted lockdowns of some of the people without appropriate compensation. Like they're under the impression that everybody locked down. Amazon's warehouse didn't lock down. Walmart didn't lock down. I can tell you in a lot of states." The weed dispensaries didn't lock down, even though they were illegal. And the liquor stores. Right? I mean, so, yeah. So it's like, it it wasn't... The the media has pushed the narrative that we were all locked down, and that's what saved us. So so people aren't understanding that from the beginning. So they're not even going to look at the CARES package. And then the CARES... Like, no media went through and broke this down and raised the red flags. In fact, I... I'm the one who brought up the Harvard thing, which I try not to talk about too much because I'm trying not to catch flack from people. Uh, but it was one of my followers who kind of got a table that was buried in like some DOE website of this breakdown, and I went Harvard, which I always make fun of. I say it's a hedge fund with a you know a, a learning institution <laughs> attached to it for cover. Uh, you know they had gotten allocated millions of dollars. And I start going, this is insanity. My small business is gonna have to apply for a loan, jump through a hoop, hope to get approved, hope to get forgiveness, blah, blah, blah. And you're giving Harvard that gets tax breaks, who's been paid in full, that has a 40 plus billion dollar endowment money under the cares that like what is happening? And then, you know, I had made such a big deal about it that much bigger people picked it up. And eventually it got to the point um, where it got to the president who mentioned it in a press conference. And the journalists still messed up the reporting because they didn't understand the difference between CARES and PPP and that PPP was a component of the CARES Act. And so they were conflating the two. And I'm like, you guys are so lousy at your job that you're not you're now even like messing this up. And we did the work for you. Um, So it's the media trying to craft this narrative because there are now activists instead of journalists. Um, and apparently not one of them has any sort of financial or economic background to figure this stuff out. And so, you know, we don't hear about these things. We may have heard about a couple things, but people really didn't get a sense of what was going on. And that's what people are like. Oh, well, small businesses got PPP. Okay. And the cares act, which was trillions of dollars for cronies that had to do nothing. There was a couple hundred billion that was given to small business. It was like less than 20% ish, I think. Well wasn't it like
0: a wasn't it like a pool and like a lot of businesses couldn't even get it? And it like well that's
1: the thing. So it was multiple tranches. The first tranche was so small that it was exhausted in 13 to 14 days. And because it was structured by again either nefarious intentions um, or imbecility either way that you want to think about it it went to the biggest small businesses because it said, okay, we're going to put these like multi-million dollar uh, ceilings, which again, if you're a business that can take down like millions of dollars in a loan, you probably have other access to capital and don't need to get a a survival loan here. Um, But it went to celebrities and it went to giant businesses and it went to public companies that they put in there, some of them, which were foreign owned. I mean, it was insane. And like your local gym, pizza parlor, hair dryer, hair, salon, whatever it is, like didn't even get a chance to get in there because of course the businesses are, or the banks are going to take care of their biggest clients first. Any business would. So it's the fault of the people who are designing this program to funnel the cash to the people who don't really need it. And so they did fix some of those things, but they never got to the point. I mean, we've spent like more than $6 trillion in terms of relief funds, and you know, a fraction of that less than a trillion has gone to support small business. And if they would have stepped up day one with a trillion to a trillion and a half for the affected small businesses, not just all small businesses, but those that were truly affected and didn't have other access to capital, They could have kept everybody on the payrolls, they could have kept those small businesses in business, they could have kept people paying taxes with the mindset that they were going back to the business and they could have spent two to three months deciding risk mitigation strategies and let people who were vulnerable go back to their lives and they did not do that. Hi kids, do you like violence? down at tsidpod.com or wherever you get podcasts that's com because the system is down and truth is taking over and i will just say joshua if you were trying to put small businesses out of business like is there something that you would have done differently no. please tell me
0: no i think i think it's you know, it's it it's looked to me since pretty much the beginning that that was the entire goal of this. It never felt to me like it was for protecting people's health. You know, it's there's so much. I mean, there's so much focus put on the fight. You know, the economic uh, portion of what's gone on over the last year by the government, um, and and to have all that focus on it, and this is the outcome that they've given us. Really feels like it was done on purpose. It really feels that way.
1: I mean, look, this is what strikes me today in terms of rhetoric: is that during the the grandma killer phase, uh, oh boy, if just one person dies, it's not worth. It. We have to preserve every life. Which again, it was 15 days to slow the spread. That was never the stated goal. But we can't lose one life. We can't. We we've got to shut everyone down now during the vaccine phase of this to the people who have side effects and perhaps you know the a small number of people who who may end up passing away very small but still someone well it's worth it because it's the vaccine so we went from like one life isn't okay to one life is totally worth it depending on which phase we were in and what sort of political outcome was being pushed um, and that's really really frightening and again it's like i I don't care i'm not even trying to convince people of lockdowns or liberty like you can make that decision but you can't have this government picking winners and losers and not compensating people for taking their property rights away that's like just an insane no man's land and unfortunately that's exactly what we did
0: sure sure uh would you agree with the phrase that the corporate news media is the enemy of the people
1: I would. <laughs>
0: good. That's what I like to hear.
1: And I mean, I've been, uh, to, be, to be honest, I've been in and around media for 12 years. There are some good people. And I would say particularly those who cover politics um, and the economy. I would say there's plenty of great investigative journalists who have broken up all, you know, broken news on all kinds of things or that cover other things that like shouldn't be included. But in terms of telling us really, what is going on? Holding politicians accountable, giving accurate feedback for economics that aren't based on oh, I like this guy or I don't like this guy. Uh, yeah, I mean they, they are they are evil. They're evil.
0: Shout out to Greenwald. Uh, so, what's what do you? Th- I don't. I haven't seen the actual numbers, but I was wondering if you knew the the actual impact of of this on small businesses as far as uh, percentage wise. What percentage? A small businesses will never open again
1: so that's a very difficult um thing to answer because Bummer. again nobody knows what they're talking about so let me give you a couple of data points as of june of last year the hamilton project which is affiliated with our friends at harvard that we talked about so like not exactly like a right-leaning organization or one that's trying to paint a rosy picture instead of june of 2020 there were 400,000 small businesses that had closed permanently. The Biden administration acknowledges that there are more than 400,000 small businesses that have closed permanently. So we know <laughs> that like at the like no matter what that's like best case scenario which is definitely more than that that that's what happens and to, again to put that in perspective there's only 10 to 15,000 big businesses. So it's like 40 times the amount of big businesses in existence on the small side that have closed, okay? Then there are millions more that we know we're struggling to survive within that period. There is um, another uh, related project called Opportunity Insights. They have statistics that are showing around like 35 to 38% of all small businesses have closed permanently. I'm telling you those numbers are too high. That, That must be, something like employer owned businesses or consumer facing businesses, there's no way that 10 million of them (laughs) were killed. But based on the data point that we had of the 400,000 and the employer businesses to say maybe 2 million, I think that's probably fair. And there's a lot more that are in economic despair um, that I think it's gonna take a couple years for them to shake out. What you're not gonna end up seeing though is the real um, real focus of the numbers because people got so much stimulus and were put out of work, there were a bunch of new startups, like record numbers of new businesses. So we're gonna have millions of new businesses that come in to replace the couple million that we probably lost and net net it, it might actually look like an increase or it might look you know about even and they're gonna try to tell you, oh see It was just a natural fallout, and that's not the case. (laughs) And in fact, the ones that have started, we know that, again, two-thirds of those don't have employees, so they're just people kind of doing their side hustles and whatnot. Um, So it's not okay to kill a business that has been around for, you know, 100 years in Chicago that went through prohibition as a bar and couldn't make it through COVID, and then, just because somebody got some stimulus money and decided to start up a little hobby business, go, okay, well, like, it's all even. So that's where you're going to see the media gloss over all of this and why it's so important for people to understand the reality because they are trying to rewrite history.
0: Oh, un- undoubtedly. And, and they always are, right? It's the, the, to the victors always write history. And, the, you know, at the end of this, unfortunately, hundreds of millions of people are going to be the losers, and we won't get the opportunity to write history, but there's great people like you and, and Tom Woods, who's been really good on all this stuff uh, through, you know, not just the business side, but the, the actual uh, uh, medical side of this stuff as well. Um, so hopefully people keep keep speaking their truths like that. Uh, let's step away from the, the economic talk for one second. I want to, t- I want to talk about uh, your influences. You, you talked a little bit about Uncle Mitty. Uh, uh, um, prior to us starting the show, who else have you read that you you really you know kind of brought you around to these these ideals?
1: Yeah, I mean, I love Uncle Nilsy. I love Thomas Sowell. I love Hayek. I love Rothbard. I mean, there's a whole bunch of really amazing dudes out there um, that are all fantastic and obviously have done you know all of the all of the work mean, all this economic stuff like none of this is new (laughs) it's all from like you know years and years and years I mean you go back to Adam Smith you go back to Locke I mean there's like there's just so much history to take in Um, but what I will say about me and even though like I went through and studied, like, economics, like, I don't have the retention for any of this. Like, I remember nothing (laughs) I learned in school, because the way that information is presented is very theoretical and academic and not real world. So I feel like I have a combination of, like, taking that and then taking real world and, like, mushing it up until sort of, like, the people's economics, if you will. um I do, I appreciate like Thomas Sowell in basic economics, you know, having a huge economics book that like had like no charts and graphs yeah. basically in it and it really easy to understand, but it's long, right? Like it's big and you still like kind of have to grind it out. um So I like, I'm not like a disciple of X. And like, I, you know, if, if you put me on the spot, like I could probably give you the general tenets. I just, I, thought, I just find the academic stuff isn't as relevant as what does it mean in terms of the real world. So I spend more time looking at the real world data and outcomes and trying to piece it together
0: that sure, way. That sure. you, you keep hanging out with people like me and Clint from Liberty Lockdown. And soon enough, <laughs> you're going to be spouting Austrian economic theories. I promise you. I promise you that. I
1: will have to say, I mean, obviously you saw the book. I've quoted Sowell a million yeah. times, um, Rothbard's in there a bunch of times. I think... Uncle Melty made it in. I, can't, I mean, he's definitely in prior drafts. I'm not sure if he made it in this draft. So, like, the influences are all there. It's just kind of slightly tweaked to be more along the lines of um, stuff. You know, I used Cardi B to sure, talk about
0: sure. Why <laughs> capitalism
1: not? Um, instead of, like, you know, the straight-up Austrian.
0: Dude, so. <laughs> well, so the next step after Milton Friedman is David Friedman, machinery freedom. You know, that's, that's the next logical step after reading, reading uh, many, <laughs> but uh, you had a, a section in here about uh, business licensing reform. Yeah. That was kind of shoved into this whole ordeal. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's talking about these sort of anti-competitive barriers that make it harder for people to get on that path of wealth creation. And I'm very focused on that. I mean, as a free marketeer, I believe in the abundance mentality. I believe in the growing of the pie. I believe everybody should have the opportunity, should they choose, to pursue wealth creation opportunities. And we're just seeing those shut down, whether it's the opportunity to own a small business, to invest in the stock market without it being disrupted at risk, to buy a house, you know, whatever it is that you can do to gain equity, we're seeing that disrupted. So the more things that you can take away from the barriers to uh, starting a small business, the more opportunities people are going to have to create wealth. And things like, you know, (laughs) the most egregious one is obviously hair braiding, right? Something that men and women do for their children every day before going off to school. cost people, you know, thousands of dollars and, you know, hundreds or thousands of hours of their time and ongoing licensure to be able to braid hair for a living. Like, how is that helping anybody? I mean, you're not even like brandishing a scissor. (laughs) It's a pure power grab. It's a pure money grab. It's a pure barrier to keep people out. And as you can imagine, you know, just based historically on styles, that disproportionately affects African-American communities and people of color. Uh, So there have been initiatives. There's a great initiative that I cite in the book that has been taking that on. And they have been going across the country. And we've seen places like Florida repeal these needs or these licensing needs. And the crazy thing about COVID is it just showed how ridiculous all of these things were, whether it was when hand sanitizer couldn't be found. And so they lifted the barriers on who could produce hand sanitizer. And all of a sudden, like in a week, there's, you know, oh, look, there's hand sanitizer or even just um, you know the nursing restrictions when they were they were running out of certain personnel because they couldn't travel across state lines or whatever. And they removed those. And oh, by the way, you know, we figured this out. So they like basically proved the case that they are limiting competition yeah. through these actions. And you know, there's so many examples outside of licensing, you know, anti-competitive regulation and insurance and you know, so on and so forth that just make it harder for somebody to try to take advantage of that wealth creation opportunity and you know to what end? Is it is it really for a benefit, or again, is it part of the greater war on small business? And I would contend that it's the latter.
0: Sure. And it's I and I wanted to, I wanted to highlight specifically that little section because we talked a little bit about how this has been going on since the '80s, but you know, a lot of people are like, "Oh, COVID's been an attack on on the on on the small business industry." But it's like everything the government has done for years for for decades has been to attack these small businesses, and that that just, I mean, the the business licensure has always been an insane let's, thing to me. Let's
1: talk. Let's talk about Dodd Frank for a sure. second, because the Great Recession. Um, was really this giant, ended up this giant attack on small business, both in terms, again, in terms of Fed intervention and how that disrupted risk in the market, um, took down interest rates, got more free capital to the big companies who could access them. But if you look at the regulation that was meant to reign in those big banks, what was the outcome of that? Well, it took the number of small community banks from, like, the about 100 uh, per year on average starting to three. (laughs) It had a lot of small business banks that went out of business. As you can imagine, who are the banks that lend to small businesses? It's the smaller banks because they have less capital to deploy, so that's what they're gonna do. So small business lending, off a cliff. And then at the same time, these big, uh, big banks had less competition, so they went out and they increased their big, uh, big business lending with again the help of, of the Fed and its printing, and that went through the roof. So this legislation that was supposed to meant to like help the little guy and to rein in the big bank ended up giving them free reign and ended up being a, a tilting of the playing field towards big businesses as well. And, you know, that's one of just many examples, but a perfect example of, again, something that's been going on for years that was very clearly not a small business issue, but they found a way to make it a small business issue and still make the big guys wealthier and more powerful.
0: Sure, sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's it's crazy how the more you dig into it, the more you understand how just how, I mean, aggressive they are towards small businesses and i i i have talked about the um, charity industry quite a bit you know when i've talked you know private charities people are always like oh you know people aren't charitable they don't want to start charities and i and i had to remind people that you know uh, lots of people try to start, start small charities and because of the, you know, bureaucratic red tape that they're wrapped up into at some inordinate amount uh, a percentage fail within the first year because they can't get through, uh, you know, the government barriers to starting a, a charity. Meanwhile, the government's constantly pushing things like the red cross down our throat that have like an 80% overhead. And um, so it's, it's kind of the same. It's, it's along the same lines. It's like, you know, you're, you're only allowed to use these approved businesses, right? These are the people that we've approved and and uh we we can control them through, you know, they need favors, we need favors, but all these small businesses we can't control and uh we can't control that the market that way and um more people need to read this book and understand that. Uh what do you think is the solution to all this? How do we how do we push back on this stuff as as a society?
1: <laughs> well, isn't that the 30 trillion dollar accounting <laughs> question? Exactly so you know there's like what's the easiest thing the lowest hanging fruit is for you to vote with your dollars um there is a piece of this that is is in your control i saw a statistic yesterday that for back-to-school shopping 85 percent of the digital shopping is expected to go to amazon Course. And again, there's nothing wrong with Amazon, you know, outside of the benefits that they get from the government intervention. But, like, if you're finding benefits in their innovation, that's fine. But maybe think about spreading out your dollars to a small business as well if you don't want Amazon to be the only business that's left standing. Just something to think about. Um, I think we need more legal challenges. I think you know, I've been encouraging small business owners to sue their local jurisdictions you know, for eminent domain. Um, I put some folks in touch with some organizations that represent you know, these kinds of injustices for free. So I think we, you know, we really need to start pushing back. There are so many things the government does that are just pure infringements on our rights and freedoms, and very little of that goes challenged. Um, So I I think we need to spend more dollars, not just worrying about like installing the right candidate in Congress that's in the machine, but like challenging the machine and like starting to tear down some of these things. And then, Lord, if we don't rein in the Federal Reserve, I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that has to be number one. And, And I'm not necessarily on the abolish the Fed train because, again, strategic thoughts here Um, And I think probably Milton Friedman and some others have made this argument before. But if you take the Fed away, you risk the federal government picking up that purview. And like if there's any outcome that's worse than the board of governors making that decision, it's Congress making those decisions. So I think we need to put guardrails around what it is that the Fed can do. Um, Milton Friedman, obviously, back in the day, suggested, you know, creating a formula that basically, you know, the money supply increases were tied to, you know, some factor of an increase in GDP or other kind of growth. You know, something that that basically doesn't allow them to continue to monetize our debt, something that doesn't allow them to just, you know, print at nauseum and to artificially suppress interest rates. Um, if we don't get on that scenario... It's gonna be really bad. And frankly, it may just be too late. Um, as you mentioned, Clint at Liberty Lockdown, we had a, an offline conversation about like, you know, the the twelve different possible scenarios. Maybe there's even more from this unprecedented central bank intervention, not just here in the US, but also around the world and what's gonna happen and and, you know, what's the history of the reserve currency um, you know, being subject to this kind of scenario? It's just there's no data to go back to other than we just generally understand that, that actions have consequences. And so to think there are going to be no consequences to this kind of action, you know, anybody with you know, any sort of an economic brain knows that that can't be the case. Uh, but what that looks like you know we could sit here and have another hour debate over which one of the the outcomes we end sure. up with but going forward if we can kind of somehow manage that I really think the fed needs to be addressed which is why I include it in the book because it is so opaque intentionally and not enough people I mean how many people do you think like call their congressperson it's like you really need to get on the fed like, you know, come on. but they should
0: <laughs> well and I didn't I didn't address the the fed so much. In this uh, conversation, because I have an exclusive stream that starts right after we end here, where I figured we could spend 10 to 15 minutes addressing sure. the Fed uh, for all <laughs> the subscribers of Patreon and, and Subscribestar and, and the uh, and the channel members. Um, I really want to get in there and kind of break down the Fed and the Fed's involvement and, and you know yeah. what can be done there. So, um, But we are at the end of this public stream, Ooh. so I, I, I think you're amazing. I just want to, I want to make that very clear. This book is amazing. Uh, it needs to be read by all of you. You need to go right now and find The War on Small Business and order it so it can be sent to your house and you can read it the next couple of days so that we can all uh, be on the same page when it's time to start pushing back on all of this bullshit. I mean, frankly, absolute bullshit. Uh, most of you are called non-essential when we all know that uh, if your job puts food on the table for your family, it is essential, it is always going to be essential, uh, and the government should have no say in that. Carol, what's next for you?
1: Um, I'm going to work on becoming a game show host. That's really what I want to do. So, you know, I'm going to go back to the drawing board and try to, like, stop, you know, spending all my time arguing about politics and uh, do fun things. But, I mean, honestly, I don't know. (laughs) But I am going to try and do that.
0: we We did get one super chat from one's compliment. He says regulations are like raising the water level from three feet to five feet in a pool with an anchored down midget and a pro basketball player
1: exactly exactly i feel like that's somewhere in chapter
0: nine yeah, it's somewhere somewhere in there absolutely yeah. uh, it, uh and h reading said uh which page in the book should we all be on all of them we should be on all the pages all of them uh, yeah, i mean listen
1: here's here's my feeling is like This isn't my book. This is everybody's book. This is a movement. Like the war on small business should be a thing that people talk about, like kind of like too big to fail. Like you should be talking about this as a concept. And I hope people don't even attribute it back to me. It's like I don't remember where I heard it, but here's this thing. You guys need to take this word and spread it out so that we not only don't have history rewritten, but we preserve economic freedom and wealth creation opportunities for future generations. I mean, is that...
0: Level of importance. Whoa, whoa, whoa! I have Stephen Kinsella on next week. I'll be talking about, uh, you know, the, the copyrights then. But uh, Carol, you're amazing. Where can all these people find you? How can they support you? How can they support your fight against the war on small businesses?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I am uh, spend most of my time on Twitter at Carol J.S. Roth. If you're not already following me and have a warped sense of humor, which it seems like you guys do based on the comments, um, that's where you find me. The War on Small Business, I encourage you to look to your local bookstore, independent bookstores, bookshop.org. Um, again, if you want to buy it on Amazon, like I'm a capitalist, that's fine, but you're voting with your dollars, so perhaps consider that. And if you own a production company and you want to hire me as a game show host, uh, reach out through my website at contact at carolroth.com.
0: Yes. Yes. Hire Carol as a game show host so she can <laughs> drop little truth bombs on America through culture. I love it. I love you it. You want
1: to buy an E and how about that, you socialist? <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh Someone said I just read read whatever's on the teleprompter. I want everyone to know that I do not have a teleprompter, and that is why I stutter so much. It would probably be a much better show if I had a teleprompter, but I do not have one. Uh, the first couple episodes I did script pretty bad, and it, it, was, it was a little rough, so I stopped doing that. Uh, but, I, but I was talking about, like, Waco and uh, 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 Ross Ulbricht, and I wanted to get all the case stuff right. And so, uh, but I don't do that anymore. Carol, I appreciate you. This wonderful book. I hope everyone will buy it and read it, and we can fight this war together. There it is. I got my copy right here. There we go. Right there. It was behind you there for a second. I always forget it's here on the screen. There you go. War on small business. Order it today. Carol, I will see you in just about three minutes for the exclusive stream where we will do nothing but shit on the Fed. I promise. Thank you so much. I dropped my whole controller there. All right, guys. Another awesome show. Break cycle. Thank you so much for hanging out. Make sure you check out our sponsors at Laurenzotti.coffee for all your delicious Italian coffee needs, delivered directly to your door. Bring the taste of Italy home. Use BTC at checkout for a ten percent discount. And of course, TopLobster.com where you can get this great Scott Horton in the War shirt that I'm wearing today, and uh, a thousand other awesome graphics on pretty much anything you want them on. Backs, hoodie, backpacks, hoodies beanies socks i think i think he's got some yoga pants even he's doing great things over there use btc at checkout for a 10 percent discount or join the patreon the subscribe star or this membership of this channel right here if you hit the join link under any of the videos uh you get into the discord chat you can get his stuff two weeks early uh before he releases a general population at like a 30 percent discount so you're getting t-shirts at like 12 bucks or something it's a really good deal uh and of course Executive producer of the show, AnthemPlanning.com, for all your emergency and crisis planning needs. Uh, Check them out today. See what they can do for your business, home, or personal life. They're doing a great job that the government sucks at for a much cheaper price and much more efficiently. I promise you, you will not be disappointed. Wonderful, wonderful libertarian-owned business from Delaware. Uh, Guys, tomorrow on the show, I have uh, my mentor and one of my favorite people in the world, Larry Sharp, coming on the show. It's going to be an awesome conversation. Uh, if you if you remember and have been following me for a long time, I traveled the country for four years. I went to forty states. Uh, I spoke at all kinds of uh, state and national conventions. Uh, got to keynote a ballroom behind Ron Paul in Omaha, Nebraska, before being uh, before being endorsed by Ron Paul for chair last year, which is one of the pinnacles of my life uh but everywhere i went larry sharp was there and uh i wouldn't be half the person i am without him today in fact he is the one that suggested i start a podcast so you guys that hate me have him to thank i will see you tomorrow uh for the show with larry if you guys want to come into the exclusive streams join the channel now until then don't forget to break the cycle
1: To explain The lyrics of my last song They seem to contain A violent call to action And the verse in refrain But I just it in Minecraft The helicopter part Was in reference to GTA V and the things you do So when he violence you commit I am not an excuse Because I just it
0: in Minecraft Poor a chipper is my friend And he's constantly cold Accusations of incitement Getting totally old Make your own choices, yeah, you have control Because I just meant it in Minecraft. Obviously I would never
1: advocate force Unless it's due process and a trial, of course. And if you're convicted, we will make you a corpse. In Minecraft, just in Minecraft. Doing nothing, I mean you know it. Don't try to get us get close to COVID. Holy shit, I think I'll poet poet In Minecraft, in Minecraft.